globalization um, as a topic has never really been off the table for right. discussion. Um, but how discussions on globalization are taking place is shifting, um, especially with regards to technological advancements, like affecting how information is generated, received, and digested. Uh, and something that you discuss is that means of transportation that facilitate like various types of migration. Uh, so the new angle that you're taking is having an agent based perspective on migration yeah. and looking at how religion impacts the migrant during the journey of migration rather than post settlement. And can you uh, just expound on and break down what it means for people to take with them their religious identities when migrating. Um, you also mentioned the metaphor of the religious toolkit and just getting into those uh, phrases and what are the implications that are carried with that. Uh, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> when I, that's a lot. Uh, when, when I think about um, the pro process of migrants carrying their religious uh, identity with them. One of the main tendencies I think I'm working against there um, is this notion that migrants put religion on hold. Uh, that's that's really something that's disconcerting for me when I read some of the migration literature. There is mm. an assumption uh, that some of these very early claims from secularization theory that that even like the creators of secularization theory have since disavowed, um, that people are still hanging on to some of these notions that religion will eventually just disappear. Um, and that whenever people are in a really tight situation, one of the first things they do is discard uh, their religious identity. The data just doesn't show us that, um, whether that be for sedentary folks or for people that are on the move. Uh, so that's my starting point there, is just recognizing that religious identities are part of our cultural repertoire. You know, we carry all of this stuff with us and, and we use it differently in context of mobility. Um, you know, there are interesting studies of people strategically converting from one religion to another because it gets them a visa status uh, as they're trying to enter Europe. So in those occasions, people uh, might set their religion to the side for a moment to accomplish a particular goal, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've given up on religiosity. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it that I am reacting to is a little bit of the just the time-tested ways that we've been relying on for measuring religiosity uh, that we think are really good indicators of religion. Um, and I'm just pushing back against that, saying maybe we need different metrics uh, for gauging migrant religiosity. Um, if you're on the move, it's hard to stop in at a church, the same church on a weekly basis, obviously. So uh, that can't be a metric by which we measure your religiosity. Um, so that's, that's part of it. But when I talk about things like the religious toolkit, um, what I'm really looking at there is uh, the notion of every single migrant as a socially located self. Um, I tell my students, and this is disconcerting for some of them, uh, that there's no such thing as the individual. Uh, that, that as persons, um, we are deeply informed by the context that we exist in, that the, the context we come from, the people that we're around, all of these things. Uh, so it would be silly for us to assume that somehow that also disappears 
when people are on the move. Uh, and part of the religious toolkits uh, that people carry with them are those identities that they've gathered from others. And so as their exposure to others uh, continues while they're on the move, um, they often come in contact with people who are far less like them than in their places of origin. And so that's where we start to get into this idea of re uh, expanding religious repertoires or expanding toolkits, people borrowing practices uh, or adapting practices that they see uh, to fit their own either belief systems or the, the particular needs that they have. this religious, uh, did you say plasticity, pluralism? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, plasticity is a good plasticity word. Plasticity <laughs> and better understanding that in terms of affecting the wider religious landscape um, yeah. and kind of that dynamic of the internal personal religion with how it's being manifested um, into observable communities uh, in societies. Yeah. Uh, and you also mentioned that uh, the migrants are less likely to reaffiliate uh, during this time, uh, mm -hmm. but I think I find it so fascinating. Like you said, kind of expanding this toolkit without necessarily committing to a reassignment of religious traditions or religious community. And how I think you're absolutely correct in that the metrics of how we understand religion has to change in light of these patterns of human movement yeah yeah um i i think i would expand a little bit on what i've said uh in relationship to the toolkit so i one of the things that i often try to argue is that religion is both a tool or a toolkit and a force so it's something that obviously people do uh, and i actually think religion is primarily practice i think belief obviously undergirds it but but oftentimes we give belief primacy of place when it's really practice that i think is driving um at least what we observe is religion um <laughs> it's obviously we could spend lots and lots of podcast hours talking about our definitions of religion oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so on one hand religion is a tool but on the other hand it's this force that that shapes people uh, and their worlds um, and that's where I'm really intrigued by this elasticity of the religious toolkit. So how far can one's religious toolkit expand before mm -hmm. uh, it reaches a breaking point or before um, serious questions about belonging are raised by institutional uh, communities? Um, just today in my world religions class, we were looking at uh, some photos of Appalachian snake handling uh, Pentecostal Christians yes. and uh, pictures of the Catholic Mass, and my students were working on this very tough question of: Are both of these groups Christian? Uh, mm -hmm. And what happens, you know, when these two groups uh, see the other? Do they do they identify them as members of their own Christian group? And it's just fun to see them to get at these kind of questions. So we know that kind of thing is happening in context of uh, settled life, but what we see in context of mobility is that some of that is exacerbated in new ways. Um, the elasticity is uh, accentuated in certain ways, um, both on the end of receiving communities that, that seem to become more elastic as, the, as members come into the community that are different than the people who already live there, but also for the migrants themselves who accumulate 
uh, you know, new practices into the religious toolkit as mm-hmm. they're going along their way. Um, so yeah, balancing that notion of religion as tool and force is important. Um, and then seeing, um, I don't, I mean, I, Sometimes I worry that when I use the terminology of religious toolkit, people think that I'm only talking about religion as like a utilitarian thing. Mm. Um, And in some ways I am, because I think that's what religion primarily is, is it's something people enact to achieve a particular outcome. Um, But that shouldn't uh, take away from our understanding of it as something that's sacred or yeah. something that is still holy. Um, we, that, this is the essence of human existence in the sense that like we do things with things because mm-hmm. that's all we can do <laughs> as humans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so religion is one of those things uh, that we put into practice to accomplish stuff. Um, and that doesn't take away from it in any way or its character in any way. I really enjoyed the something that you wrote and says at the end of the day what matters is not the doctrinal consistency of one's mm. religious beliefs but the, its comprehensiveness um, and yeah. the ability of religion to cope with the realities of lived experience at the end yeah. of the day that's what's going yeah. to matter for people yeah and that's oh that's so I'm glad you, you brought that up because uh, um, so that phrase I actually borrowed um, part of that language from a biblical scholar named Seth Sanders, who was not writing about this particular issue at all. But I really like that the terminology of his phrase, which is that uh, he's talking about the development of the Torah. Uh, And he says, at some point, the Torah authors opt for comprehensiveness of presentation over coherence. Mm. Um, And this is actually part of my dissertation. I'm arguing that that's what we're seeing for the entire Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And the reason that we're seeing it is because these are migrationally informed documents. And this is the character of migrational religion is that it opts for comprehensiveness rather than coherence. So I wanna read a quote that I really enjoyed that you wrote. Uh, So it says, the primary aim is to show that across physical and chronological boundaries, one can recognize religion as a source of emotional resiliency, individual and corporate support, a medium of identity negotiation, and a means by which movers meet physical and spiritual needs. So looking at how transnationalism, as facilitated in part by migration, is affecting religious landscapes. Uh, what does this look like today uh, for our listeners? Um, do you have any concrete um, examples in mind? And if you remember this last part, uh, you know, can we speak to the relationship between religious and national identities that overlap in uh, migration yeah that last part is definitely a harder one uh, I will ponder that for a little bit um, <laughs> I think what we're seeing is just that the support networks that we have long associated with migration across space uh, they're becoming more robust uh, because of technological innovation speed of travel uh, uh, and so it's Like, I I often study uh, migration in the ancient world, obviously, for my work. And 
we talk about transnationalism in some respects existing in the ancient world, but it's slower uh, in pace in a sense. People could still send letters. People were still communicating. You know, uh, migration is still primarily a household endeavor in the ancient world um, as it is today. And those households, be they biological or fictively created, uh, maintain connections with one another. They maintain um, a particular kind of identity across space and, space and time, which fosters the support that are necessary for the movers and non-movers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that in the ancient world. I think we see it today, but at uh, a different scale, because uh, you can wake up in the morning, even if you're a migrant, most migrants still have access to like cell phones because of the ubiquity of this technology. They can call people in their place of origin and check in with them. Um, that's obviously not true for all migrants. Um, but, and, and we can come back to this later, the, the, the notion that all migrants are like refugees or disenfranchised and all that kind of stuff is obviously something we should talk about because the majority of them are not. Um, but the notion that they have access to maintaining those kinds of connections transcends just the household relationship and it moves into the religious world too. So we have, if you're looking for concrete examples, migrants that are watching YouTube videos of their church, Mm. of their actual pastor give a sermon while they're on the move. They're still connected to that community uh, in a way that they would have never been previously. Um, They're getting prayer update emails from their religious leaders along the way and their religious leaders are relaying information to family members um, and letting them know that that the person that they're waiting to hear from is still is doing okay um, so the transnationalism is is able to be facilitated by this increased technological advancement the other thing that we're just seeing more of is migrants are traveling back and forth more frequently uh, my barber is an awesome guy. Uh, he is um, originally from the Middle East, and it's always interesting to hear him tell his story because the the uh, speed at which his journey happened here uh, is unlike the story that my great grandfather would tell when he had, had to get on a ship. Um, you know, my barber got on a plane, and twelve hours later, he was mm-hmm. in the United States. So the speed of that travel allows the transnationalism. Uh, to take place in a different way. And what that means in the religious world is that we actually have migrants who are traveling back and forth at rapid paces between two different, very distant sites and participating in religious communities in both of those places. Um, that's kind of an insane thing when you think yes, about it. Yes, absolutely. It's mind-blowing to go to church in Nigeria one week and then the next week you're going to church in New York City and then the next week you're back in Nigeria going to another church. So uh, it's expanding people's religious communities, if anything, uh, rather than constricting them. Transnationalism facilitated by migration is affecting religious landscape and what are, if there are any uh, tangential relationships, connections to how religious identities and national identities are mutually um, informative. Yeah. Yeah, this is always, I mean, I think about so many different kinds of examples when I consider these the, the intersection of these topics. Um, one of the first things that comes to mind is just this question of 
the power of the nation state to control the expression of religious identity in public spaces mm. um, and how that informs acculturation practices of migrants, um, mm-hmm. whether you're thinking about headscarves in France, uh, whether you're thinking about uh, Muslim men shaving their beards in the United States, um, the, the question of the power of the nation state not only over the like very basic question of controlling mobility, because that's clearly a question, um, but but controlling religious mobility in the sense of like what the person can do with their body mm. uh, in the public sphere. Um, I think that's an area that we just need more research on. Um, I I'm recently wrote a book chapter on uh, migrant hair removal practices uh, and. I'm just intrigued with with body modification in context of migration. Um, And part of that is just the the question about like the role that the nation state plays in that too, uh, in determining what counts as like national identity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, reminds me to something that we mentioned earlier of how uh, religious identities are expressed in visible, tangible ways in the U.S. versus mm-hmm. in the Middle East, uh, yeah. because the nation state does play such an influential role in regulating and establishing um, acceptable parameters. Totally. To what yeah. extent, you know, can you <laughs> display your religious devotion and practices? So the process of reification of religious identities uh, post-settlement, again, as affecting uh, religious landscapes. Um, And you couch this within the concept of uh, place-making as affected by the movers' personal religion. Um, There's a process of movers setting apart sacred spaces, reestablishing households uh, post-settlement as parts of place-making as well. And I think the process that you explain uh, helps make sense of kind of continuing this political discourse on nationalism and national identity. Um, The world is hearing a certain kind of rhetoric from host countries. Um, And is there anything, what would you like to contribute uh, or shed light to this conversation? Um, Migration isn't going away. Religion isn't going away. Uh, Humanity has to move forward hopefully in a constructive way um whether it's from the vantage point of an individual or you know community living in the host country or in terms of public policy uh so to summarize all of that just placemaking reification religious landscapes yeah um wow you're you're asking (laughs) some like hard hitters here okay uh My mind first goes to uh, what might be low-hanging fruit in this kind of conversation. Um, But when I think about the the reality of multiple spheres of operation, uh, that that we really are multiple selves in a way. Uh, You know, I am who I am as a professor. I am who I am as a husband. And there's overlap there. Uh, I am who I am as a son and as a friend. I am who I am as a dog owner. or I should say a dog caretaker. Uh, some I know some people <laughs> that animal. Um, 
But in some way, we still come back to the differentiation between domestic realms or personal realms and then public realms. Mm. Um, and what I, the thing that I think we're still lacking, and people have been saying this now for obviously uh, quite some time, but it seems like what we're lacking most in American discourse about domestic and public life is a sense of civility. Uh, that the notion that we could uh, reasonably and respectfully disagree with one another, um, that we could be hospitable to one another without forcing each other to uh, bow to all of our conditions just to have a discussion. That's what I, I mean. That's what I want to contribute is is just trying to practice that kind of thing on my own. Um, and the way that I think we can get there, one of the ways we can get there. Uh, is with this disposition of hospitality. Mm. Um, I talk to my students about this all the time. Uh, I don't know. Do you follow Stanley Hauerwas at all? Uh, okay. Do. So Hauerwas has this like very funny video that he put up on YouTube many, many years ago about why religious tolerance is a terrible idea. Um, and his basic assumption is not that we shouldn't be tolerant people per se in, in the best sense of the word, but he basically asked the question, how does it feel to be tolerated? Mm. Um, it's not really a very positive thing. It's obviously better than, than being totally intolerant. Um, but I think that hospitality is a better disposition than tolerance. Uh, and I think that if we're uh, trying to approach any kind of like ethos or ethic of civility, it needs to emanate from a place of hospitality. So true hospitality means that the guest and the host are both given integrity. Uh, and so the host recognizes that the person coming into that space doesn't have to share uh, any of their worldview in order mm. to be offered compassionate care. Uh, and likewise, the guest doesn't expect the host to, to necessarily change either uh, mm -hmm. to accommodate their needs. Um, that's what I would like to see more of uh, in our discourse about religiosity in the public space. And I think that's what that's what we need to be heading to. And one of the, the ways that we can get there is paying attention to these things that we've talked about with the particularity of religious identities in context of mobility. Uh, if we're recognizing that people don't put their religious identity to the side, um, yeah. then we're halfway to the point of recognizing, okay, then what, what will we do to be hospitable to people mm -hmm. who are particularly different from us? Yeah, and that religious identity is religious expression is something that we have to take seriously. And yes, no one indeed. should and no one's expected to, you know, check their religious hat at the door before right. they can come yeah. to the space of conversation. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So that might be low-hanging fruit, but that's... Uh, it feels sometimes it feels very far away to me still <laughs> absolutely absolutely um it is but we have yet to enact it so <laughs> well said <laughs> so you mentioned uh, that you want to respond to the common misconceptions about religion and migrant religiosity uh, that have that are resulting in detrimental impacts on migrants and migration policies at do you have do any specific misconceptions come to mind and specific policies uh, that come in mind in terms of this yeah so like uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is actually related to what I've been saying about migrants putting religion on hold um, 
one of the most detrimental assumptions by policymakers is that we expect, and this is particularly true in the West, we expect that migrants will forget their religion mm. um, so that they can quickly acclimatize to whatever the political situation is or whatever it is. So we expect that, and because we expect that, uh, much of our migration policy doesn't account for the, the real social needs um, that grow out of religious particularity. Uh, and so we just assume, oh, well, you must be hungry. Um, we're giving you free food. Oh, but it doesn't meet your dietary restrictions. Like, well, don't be so ungrateful. Uh, I mean, that kind of stuff is is just found all over the place, and it's terrifying. Um, one of the actual things that's, that really helps the situation the most is that the, uh, the majority of um, – migration assistive agents that are out there are actually not governmental uh and so those religious institutions that are filling in the gaps for the governments um are taking this kind of thing more seriously than the governments themselves are the problem is is that they don't get to write policy uh and they're not always at the policy making table to say these are the things we need to pay attention to um and so it could be something as simple as food at refugee camps. It could be something um, much more serious in terms of um, not paying attention to certain religious differences when migrants are being placed in group housing, uh, not providing migrants with appropriate worship spaces because they, we don't think that's an important part mm-hmm. of taking care of them. Um, not... Uh, you know, sometimes there's expectations that migrants perform particular activities on days that might be a religious holiday uh, or a day that's like a fast day. Um, so, yeah, all of those things grow out of the very basic assumption that religion is private. It's not that important. Mm. Uh, just get over it and we'll help you with your real needs, which are material. Um, and that's what's problematic. Have you seen the uh, the signs that say, uh, no matter where you're from, we're glad you're our neighbor? Yes. Floating around? Okay. Uh, so my church here in Harrisonburg is the church that created those signs. Wow. Um, and that's really, I mean, for me, that is just a basis of both personal and corporate religious ethic that uh, neighborliness is where this kind of thing starts. Mm-hmm. Um my wish for most people is that they would just go talk to somebody who's a migrant and at the same time that they can do that, like do, obviously do that respectfully, to delve into their own migrant past. Because the majority of us have some story of movement in our past. Um, and this like ubiquitous experience of mobility, and, and I don't mean mobility in the sense of like obviously people uh, who are uh, not able to move about on their own um, are still a part of this equation. Mm-hmm. But this notion of, of mobility is really like one of the most ubiquitous elements of the human experience, that that we come from different places, we live uh, in different places for much of our lives. Um, and that should be a starting point for us to talk about movement, uh, both metaphorically and in, in the real ways of coming together that like we're all a people of, of movement uh, in a certain way or another. Um, and so that's, that's just a, yeah, square one for me.
in many ways, but it starts with recognizing our own stories of mobility and talking to people who are experiencing that today. Because um, for people like me who are in a place of privilege, mobility is very different. I can travel the world and give talks all over the place um, out of this place of privilege. And, and there are people who are moving uh, because they're forced to. Mm. Um, and so it's important for me too to just be with people who might not have the same kind of choice or agency uh, in their experience of movement. Um, and I encourage that for others as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like uh, empathy and hospitality. <laughs> yeah. Low hanging fruit here. But yeah, uh, like you yeah. said, we, we have trouble enacting it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I say we keep talking about it until we see it generating action. So what I would say is that uh, the, the takeaway is that if we if we truly care about helping migrants, uh, whether they're forced migrants or whether they are um, migrants with a great sense of personal autonomy, um, we have to consider religion. That this is something so fundamentally important to the majority of migrants that if we forsake this uh, in our accounts of their experience and in trying to help them, um, we are forsaking uh, one of the most elemental uh, parts of the human experience. And, and, and in that regard, we're forsaking our assistance to them um, mm. because we're not taking care of the things that they think are most important. Uh, we're putting our own needs before theirs. Um, and so I was, that, that would be my takeaway is that you just you cannot neglect religion as a part of the migrant experience. And if we do so, we're doing a huge disservice to migrants. Mm. 